0: Strange Stories UK here again, Season 6, Episode 16. This is The Murder of Ruby Roberts, Worthing, Sussex, 1965. Well, Worthing in the 1960s was a holiday town favoured by the genteel elderly, whose constitutions could not bear the bright lights and excitement of Brighton and Hove. Employers had long seen Worthing as a convenient area with good links along the coast and to London, and a well-educated local population with realistic property prices. Worthing was a desirable place to live at this time, with higher-than-usual population of the town's population being retired and having conservative outlook on life. Worthing was on the south Downs, next to the sea, not far from London. Ruby Griffin Beale better known as Ruby Mary Jane Roberts was born in January 1902 at Croydon, South London, although she claimed that her birth date was 1910. By 1965 she was five foot tall, slightly plump build, her hair was dyed blonde, she had a fresh complexion, blue eyes, a lightly upturned nose, well-shaped lips and false teeth. She also had a broad ugly appendix scar, and at least two other scars about five inches long, these were all below the navel. Ruby was said to look young for her age. For a long time Ruby had lived with Eric Roberts as his wife, and was known as Mrs. Roberts. She assumed the second Christian name Mary, and she was also known to her friends by her Christian name Jane. Eric and Ruby moved to the Worthing area in the early 1950s and built up a social life with friends in the area. Ruby was said to be highly strong and could get over emotional over issues. Family members said that she would get upset over things that would not bother most people. I think it would be fair to say that she was a difficult personality. Ruby never had any kind of employment during her time in Worthing and never had children. Shortly after their arrival in Worthing, Mr. Roberts and Ruby formed a limited company known as Mary Griffin Limited. This dealt in the reconstruction and conversion of property. The company was formed in 1954. Mr. Roberts and Ruby were the shareholders and directors. Mr. Alex, sorry, Mr. Alexander James Green was a secretary and Mr. Norman Edward Bradley the solicitor. In April 1957 Mr. Roberts died and Ruby became the sole director of the company holding 99 shares. Mr. Green the secretary holding one share. Algerian William Watson known as Al in 1965 he was aged 50 as he was born on the 10th of June 1915. Al Watson's marriage had failed, no doubt in large part due to him serving long prison sentences. After his divorce in October 1963, he went to stay with his mother at Old Fort Road, Shoreham, by Sea, which is next to Worthing in Sussex. On the 25th of September 1964, Watson opened a bank account, somehow being allowed an overdraft to the limit of £21,000 this was to complete a bungalow on a site at Selsey, Selsey being along the coast. This was a scam as Watson had no intention of building anything. He just wanted to make a steady withdrawal so that by the 30th of June 1965 there was only a thousand pound left in the account. Watson had fraudulently obtained money in the past. During January 1965 Al Watson met with Ruby and they soon became a couple. Watson moved in with Ruby at 70 Grand Avenue Worthing. They met after he had replied to an advert in a newspaper placed by Ruby who required someone to help her run her property business. On the 10th of March 1965 Al Watson was appointed as a director of Mary Griffin Limited. He did not hold any shares at this time the company's assets were two properties, 50 Mill Road in Worthing and the flat at 70 Grand Avenue Worthing. In today's values, these would be worth well over a million pounds. There were other assets owned by the business. Without going too deeply into details, Ruby had made it easy for Al Watson to access her account, and the assets of the company that was being run in her interests to pay her £40 a month for her expenses. This would have been a little under the average income for the average wage earner at the time, although of course Ruby did not have to pay rent. Ruby lived quite a comfortable life, she was not rich but comfortably off, and she had the habit of using her company's bank account if she needed extra money, much to the accountant's annoyance. On the 12th of March, 1965, the bank manager was informed in writing by the company, of the company's secretary, Mr. Alexandra Green, to the effect that Mitzer Watson had been appointed a director of the company, and that either he, Watson or Ruby could sign checks drawn on behalf of the company. Al Watson had been introduced to the bank manager by Ruby during January 1965 although he said his name was Michael Watson, using a different Christian name. Watson was to assist with the building conversion work. After this introduction, the bank manager said all his dealings were with Watson, who he thought to be very efficient in trying to run the business and restore the financial viability of the company. The bank manager was concerned that Ruby Roberts was not running the business very well. The bank manager Mr Green said he was surprised to learn that Watson was living with Ruby Roberts. He described Ruby Roberts as highly strong, an emotional type of person and completely unbusinesslike. Mr Lewis was the manager of the Oldwick Road Bogner branch of the Midland Bank, who had lent Watson the money to build the bungalow at Selsey during September 1964. Mr. Lewis went to visit the site in February 1965 and discovered that no development had been started. The site was overgrown. This despite the fact that most of the money to construct the building had already been withdrawn. Lewis later discovered that Watson had sold the land. It's unknown if the Binder Bank knew where Watson was living. This is probably the reason why he was using a different Christian name. Well, it was around this time, uh, February 1965, that Watson and Ruby first met with the Cote G's. The Cote G's were flat hunting in Worthing and had been sent by an estate agent to view 70 Grand Avenue Worthing that had been put up for sale in February. The Cote G's did not buy the flat, but they kept in touch with the Watson and Ruby as they had mutual interests missus Coate Cote-G had a mutual interest in antiques and decor with Ruby, while mister Coate Cote-G and Watson were interested in boats and fishing. missus Coate Cote-G understood that Ruby and Watson were engaged to be married. When she called to visit Ruby in June 1965, Watson and mister Coate Cote-G often met at Coate gs boat which was moored at Littlehampton on the River Arran. But just a week or so after learning that Ruby was to be married, Ruby confided in Mrs. Cote G saying that she found Watson to be a liar and she was unhappy and frightened over her association with him. Ruby had told her that Watson was in financial difficulties and was seeking a way out by using her money. Mrs. Cote G later told the police that she had only met her a few times after that. She described Ruby as a very nice person. Physically she was very petite very short, but she had a very nice manner, and she thought that Mr. Watson was rather below Ruby's station in life. The last time Ruby's sister, who was May Griffin Beale, saw her was during April 1965, when she went to a gathering at 70 Grand Avenue, Ruby's house, to meet Watson, who was supposedly to marry Ruby. Also present was her half brother, Harry Melbourne Dennis, and Watson's mother and sister. So, I don't know if you can hear that, there's a crazy thunderstorm going outside, Uh, but I shall continue. Interestingly, Dennis lived at Cecil Lodge, 20 Old Fort Road Shoreham, which was in the same road as Watson's mother, or where she lived. This is the road that runs parallel to Shoreham's Sink Shingle Beach, known as the beach that the tourists did not know about. The area had a community feel about it. There's a village green that puts on festivals, fights and the like. Mae Griffin-Bill said that she later phoned her sister, but Watson answered and gave the phone to Ruby who sounded very quiet and disinterested in any conversation. During July 1965, friends of Ruby called to see her and found her in bed. She seemed depressed. Her speech seemed curious, and she did not seem well. She was anxious. F- Tuesday the 20th of July 1965, one of these friends, Mrs. Leonard, telephoned Ruby, but the phone was answered by Watson, who told her that Ruby had gone off to Bath in the West Country with friends that had gone off in an old Bentley motor car. He explained that they were old school friends and Ruby needed a holiday. He stated that she was very happy. The man was called Peter, but he did not know the wife's name. They were friends with the late Mr Roberts. Watson said that he was keeping in touch with her by telephone and they were planning to go on a tour of Wales. Twice during July 1965, Watson visited his doctor saying he could not sleep. He was tense and anxious. On the 20th of July, the doctor increased his dosage of a powerful sedative drug, 2 anl At about 5pm on the 21st of July, 1965, Mr. Coke G, the owner of the fishing cruiser, moored on the River Arran at Littlehampton, and who was friends with Watson, called at 70 Grand Avenue in his car and picked Watson up, They drove to Littlehampton and went to the boat where Watson told Mr. Cote G that he had persuaded Ruby to go back with friends who had come up from Dorset on the previous day and she had gone back with them during that evening. The two men did some work on the boat. As far as Mr. Cote G can remember, there were three gallons of fuel in the port tank and four gallons in the starboard tank. The normal consumption of fuel under normal running was one gallon per hour. This would represent an average distance of 5 or 6 miles per hour. The two men left the boat at 7.30pm. Mr. Cote G returned Watson to his flat at Grand Avenue. Cote G told Watson that he had a luncheon appointment in Worthing the next day. So Watson would have known that he would not be using his boat. On the next day, which was the 22nd of July, at 10.15am, A group of people were on board a boat travelling towards the river mouth of the River Aran. Mr Howard was one of the people on board. He knew Mr Cote G and was surprised to see Watson on Cote G's boat approaching from the sea. Cote G's boat was drifting and Watson shouted that the clutch had gone and he appeared to throw an anchor over the side. Mr Howard said that Watson appeared very angry It was arranged to get the boat towed up to its mooring from the harbour mouth. On Saturday the 24th of July, Coke G had been informed about his boat, which he went to inspect and found that the clutch had burnt out. Furious, Cote G drove to see Watson at 70 Grand Avenue, where he asked him, What the hell had he done with his boat? Cote G told Watson he'd be hearing more about this before leaving. The police were later involved. Mr. Cote G said that the padlock was forced from the the boat gear lever. Watson said he didn't force it, there was a key hanging under the seat where it always was. Watson told police he was thinking of buying the boat and wanted to test it by himself. It did not go well. When Watson cast off from the mooring he said that the boat was taken off by the tide and just missed hitting the bridge and then it ran aground. It seemed that Watson found it difficult controlling the boat. During late July 1965, Watson was selling the fixtures and fittings of Ruby's flat. Selling china, silver tea service, toast rack, women's clothing. He received about £400. He told people who asked him the reason for selling the items was that he had purchased the company Mary Griffin Limited, which owned all the items being sold. Watson told other people that the items belonged to his wife, who was away at present. All the items had been sold by the 3rd of September, including the large items of furniture. By early September, Mr. Dennis, the stepbrother of Ruby, was getting concerned, as he had last seen his stepsister during April or May 1965. During August and September, he had tried to contact Ruby. He was not satisfied with what Watson told him, and he reported her continued absence to the police at Worthing Police Station on the 1st of September 1965. Watson was questioned by the police on September 11th. Watson was now telling a different story, saying that Ruby was in London, staying with friends from Croydon. He gave a description of the friends, Peter and his wife, and the vehicle that they were using, a Bentley and said that they had left with Mrs. Roberts early one Saturday morning, having stayed since the previous Wednesday, and it was the second or third week in July. He said that he was in regular telephone communication with Mrs. Roberts every Saturday night, and that Mrs. Roberts had visited the flat on two occasions, and on the last time he had been in contact with her by telephone was on the 28th of August 1965. The description of the friends of Ruby were given to her concerned relatives, but nobody was able to identify who they were. The police were not happy with Watson's statement. They had made inquiries based upon it. Watson said that the man called Peter and his wife had come to stay for a few nights at the flat, and they'd been driving a beige Bentley car which had been parked outside the flat at 70 Grand Avenue. What troubled the police was that none of the neighbours had noticed this. Watson's answer to this was, They were there because I didn't like the bloke. So a strange and not a logical response. One of the neighbours said that there was definitely no Bentley parked outside the flat. Only Ruby's standard vanguard car. There was only one entrance to the flats, and the neighbours said he would have noticed a strange car. Especially a Bentley, an expensive luxury motor car. Watson replied, Well, I can't understand that. Police inquiries into Al Watson proved interesting. Algernon William of Watson seemed to raise every flag of the characteristics of an untrustworthy character. He was like a cartoon character of a scoundrel. He was born on June tenth, 1915, at March, in Cambridgeshire. He was the second eldest child of five. He had one sister. His father was a farmer, his mother, now a widow, was now living at 93 Old Fort Road Shore and by sea, part of the urban sprawl that links the town with Worthing. Watson had received a grammar school education and had left to become an apprentice carpenter. Watson married Ivy Upton during December 1945, but she divorced him for adultery. Watson then entered on two bigamous marriages in 1951 and 1956. Watson was not charged with bigamy because for the first offence he was already serving a six-year prison sentence and for the second offence the police could not find the witnesses. The second bigamous marriage was with Brenda Shepard and there were two children, a boy and a girl, born in the late 1950s. Rather bizarrely, Brenda Shepherd was granted a divorce from Watson in 1963, although the marriage did not legally exist. Watson seemed to have been a monumental bore. He invented a Second World War history for himself, when for a good part of that time he was actually in a UK prison. He had joined the Suffolk Regiment on the 8th of November 1932, but was discharged as Ceasing to fulfil army physical requirements. Uh, this was in October 1935. The reason for this was that he had sustained an injury to his right knee while engaged in a hockey match. No overseas record was uh, recorded in his army records. After this, he travelled around working on construction sites in the Norfolk and Hertfordshire areas. During this time, there were convictions for theft and dishonesty. During May 1940, after the outbreak of World War II, he enlisted with the Royal Engineers but was discharged on the 15th of June 1941 as being unable to fulfil army physical requirements. There was no overseas service recorded and it was during this period of service that he was sentenced to three months hard labour for theft. During the war, there was a mixture of temporary work and prison sentences until he enlisted in the army again. I would assume that he had not revealed his previous army experience or his prison spells, but as there was a war on, not too many questions were being asked by the armed forces. Watson enlisted in the Royal Fusiliers during October 1943 and was posted to the Infantry Training Centre and then the Army Reserves until December 1946. Again, no overseas service was recorded. Watson was awarded the 1939-45 War Medal and was described as a sound, reliable soldier. However, Watson told many stories about his war record serving overseas, which must have been imaginary. Following his release from the Army, there, was a, there were business failures working for short periods on building science and farms and spells in prison. He was employed in other jobs such as a chauffeur, a gardener, but he was always dismissed as his character was not being thought satisfactory and he used false references to secure positions. The two longest prison spells that he had were six years and five years. Watson moved to the south coast in 1962, living in a dormobile vehicle travelling around building sites. Watson states that he was self-employed on various building sites until his association with Ruby Roberts in December 1964. During this time he was living in a dormer bill. he was being pursued for debts including for the cost of the vehicle that he was living in. Ruby Roberts' niece told the police that she'd met Watson in her aunt's company on a number of occasions. The niece understood that they were going to be married. She said that she couldn't really say whether her aunt told her that Watson had asked her to marry him or if she said we are going to get married. The niece said that she felt nearly sure that Aunt Ruby told her that Watson had asked her to marry him. Watson had told the niece about his imaginary war exploits when he served as a commando, telling her of the methods. One story was a mission in Norway when he had to break into a safe during the war. He told her that he was able to kill a man with a blow from the side of his hand. I would imagine that after the war there would have been a few delusional characters such as Watson, who had served in the forces and heard some stories, and later retold them imagining it was them that had experienced them. The niece described her aunt Ruby as having an artistic temperament with mood changes quickly going from very cross to placid. The police thought that Watson had met another woman who he was interested in romantically. It seemed that the woman who drove a red Mini had been visiting him whilst he was alone at the flat at Grand Avenue in Worthing. Watson admitted to replying to what could be seen as a dating advert, and they had spent time with each other after Watson said that the woman just turned up at the flat. The police must have been working out that Ruby had gone missing, she had been unwell and depressed. there had been arguments between her and Watson, Ruby's company was in money difficulties and it seemed it was more than likely that Watson had embezzled large sums of money from it. Watson was now entertaining other women at the flat. So what had happened to Ruby? Watson said that the business was not doing well and Ruby wanted to get away for a while. She said that she did not want to be disturbed by her bank manager or accountant and she left Watson, according to him, strict instructions that she did not want to be disturbed by anyone and Watson claimed that he promised her that he would make sure that she would not be contacted. She had been suffering from ill health and was worried about the business and she needed a holiday. 1.45 One forty-five on Wednesday, the 15th of September, 1965. Mr. Starr and others fishing on the beach saw the body of a woman, unclothed except for a green scarf knotted around her neck, on the incoming tide at Denge Marsh at Lyd, at Romney Marsh in Kent. The body was taken to Lyd Mortuary, where a post-mortem was conducted by Dr. Cameron. The body was that of a woman, Well-nourished, apparently middle-aged, five feet in height, 11 stone in weight, showing changes consistent with immersion in water for a period in excess of three weeks, although probably longer. There was a double ligature tied tightly around the neck, otherwise the body was devoid of clothing which of course would have been removed by the actions of the sea. Most of the head hair had fallen out, apart from a few strands of fair hair going grey. There were injuries visible on the forehead, and evidence that she had been strangled. There were visible surgical scars on the lower abdomen. There were both upper and lower artificial dentures, which would be useful in identifying the body. There was no evidence of drowning, I think it was assumed the woman had been murdered and the body dumped at sea. Death was due to strangulation by ligature. Coroner's inquest was by Mr. Merton Neal, who was the coroner for South East Kent, and he opened the inquest uh, on the body at the Guildhall lid at 2:30 p.m. on the 22nd of December 1965. But it was soon adjourned to the 1st of December. Dental records indicated that the body was the remains of Ruby Roberts. Four fifteen p.m. on Friday the seventeenth of September nineteen sixty-five, Detective Sergeant Jackson saw John Watson, Al Watson, at Worthing Police Station. Record his first interview on the eleventh of September nineteen sixty-five. He asked Watson if he'd heard from Mrs. Roberts in the meantime. Watson said no, he had not. Watson then dictated a statement, not under caution, giving an account of how Mrs. Roberts had left the flat and her subsequent movements. This was that Mrs. Roberts was with an unknown man at an unknown address in London. Watson remained at the police station where at 11.15pm, Detective Sergeant Jackson then questioned Watson regarding facts contained in his statement Pointing out that it did not seem accurate, Watson made a second statement saying that he was covering for Ruby, who did not want to be known, did not want it known where she was. In the statement, Watson apologizes to the previous false statements he made, explaining them away by saying he was covering for Ruby Roberts, as he said that she had, that he had promised her that she, that he would not reveal any personal information about her, or where she had gone. As she wanted to be left alone. So Roberts remained at the police station, and at 1 am on Saturday, the 18th of September, Sergeants Jackson and Dicker again saw him and questioned him about the contents of his second statement. Watson said, I'm not going to give her away. No, I'm going to cover up for her. Sergeant Dicker said, What is there to cover up? At 2.35am, the officers again saw Watson and questioned him further regarding the second statement. And during the course of the interview, Watson varied his story again, saying he had taken Mrs. Roberts to a hotel in Westbourne Park Road, London. So Watson continued to be detained at the police station. 19th of September now, Watson detracted his account of taking Mrs. Roberts to the hotel and elected to write a third statement under caution. This statement was commenced at 12.30 p.m. and completed at 2.50 p.m. So it took well over two hours. At three minutes past three p.m. on the 19th of September, Watson was then ambushed by the police. The policeman, Sergeant Dicker, told Watson that they were in possession of information which may prove that Mrs. Roberts was not on holiday. Watson said, where is she then? If you know that, bring her here. Dicker told Watson that they can't bring her here, and that they think, or we think, that you know why. They then explained how a woman, which matched Ruby Roberts' description, was taken from the sea off of Kent. Watson said, my God. Watson then told the police his version of what happened. He started to cry, and then, this is in his his words, he said, This is Watson speaking. The bitch. The bitch. Oh, how I loved her. Everything was going so well with the business, but she would spend. I've had no wages. We've been on sausages for months. Ask the bank manager. He'll tell you. How things were straightening up, just as everything was coming out right. You see, I'd sold some land. Well, a £1,000 of that was going into the business. But it just wasn't me. I was trained to kill with my hands, with the side of my hand I can break a piece of four by two, I can kill anyone with three fingers, I know the seven points of the body where you can kill, it just wasn't me, not that, she had so many men, she kept insulting me and the language." Then Watson broke down and cried for a few moments and then said, in his words, I'm sorry gentlemen, excuse me. It all started when she fell over a mat and I laughed. She went for me and threw a cup at me. I just walked away into the kitchen and she followed. There had been a play on television. One of those suspense things. You don't know what's going to happen at the finish. Not like Hitchcock. She kept on. So I walked out of the kitchen. But as I got to the door, I heard a bang near my shoulder and I thought that she'd thrown a knife. It was a black-handled one like a a prestige knife, very sharp. I went back and slapped her, not on the bottom, but I just boxed her ears. She screamed in anger. I left her and went into my bedroom. I got into bed and felt a bit dozy because we'd been drinking a mixture of wine and gin. You'll find a bottle in the kitchen. Suddenly the door flew open and she came in in her nightdress, swinging a pair of stockings. She went on at me about not being a man. She wanted it at five o'clock in the morning when I got up, when I came in for coffee, and again at tea time. I can't do it. I'm fifty. I like women, but not that often. Well, could you do it? Well, anyway, she kept swinging these stockings and leaning over me and going on. I whipped them round her neck and strangled her. It wasn't me. If I'd used my hands, I could understand it. My God, I haven't slept since. I prayed for her. Watson then broke down and cried again. When he recovered, he said, in his words, She was on my bed. Her face was purple. I picked her up and took her to the bedroom and threw her on the bed. She moved and I picked some article of clothing off her bed and knotted it around her neck. I don't know what I picked up. I don't know what happened then. I must have stayed in that room speaking to her because I loved her. Time went by, but I don't remember. But it must have been the next night. It was dark. Then training began to take over. We used to bury collapsed boats at the beaches. I thought, where could we hide the body? I thought the sea. I love the sea. I go down to the pebbles at the end of Grand Avenue and just watch the waves. Anyway, I thought of a friend's boat at Littlehampton. So I put Ruby in the back of the vanguard and drove her over to the boat. I put her in. Put her in the boat. It was just getting light. I started us and we went down under the bridge, out to sea. I don't know how far I went. Then I threw her over the side. But she didn't sink. She didn't sink. She didn't sink. I should have known. She just floated away. I couldn't stop her. The waves were so big. Then everything went wrong. The boat wouldn't start. But anyway, I got back to the river and the engine cut out. I couldn't do anything. I just drifted around. Then a boat went past and people waved. I don't know who they were. I just threw an anchor and walked up to Osborne's boatyard and had it towed in by a lad with a towboat. After this, Watson was cautioned again and charged with murder. The flat was searched, a red-handed knife was found, but no black-handed knife, which the police don't think ever existed. Watson gave more information to the police later. Watson said he first met Ruby after he answered an advert in a newspaper in January 1965. Within a week he'd moved in with her and they were living as man and wife. Watson said that he soon realised that she did more love and care than a normal woman of her age. She told him she was 55 when in fact she was 64. Watson at this time was 49. Watson said that he told Ruby all about himself well this would have been all lies and half-truths such as he was a war hero Watson claimed that Ruby showed him her bookkeeping records which he said were shocking and that Ruby had a succession of men that used her and each had robbed her Watson said that there had been about 7 previous lovers who had used her he claimed that Ruby had a hard life and her husband had shown her no love and that she said that she wanted to marry Watson Ruby said that she had no real friends and her half-brother and sisters were trying to take her money. The statement went on saying how Watson had saved her company from going bankrupt and gave reasons why she was away. Um, Do I need to point out here that Watson is very much an unreliable narrator, so whatever he says should be taken with a big pinch of salt? Well, Watson was formally charged with the murder of Ruby Roberts. Watson had a long history of fabricating his previous life. It seemed probable that Watson had embezzled all of Ruby's money, and then she'd found out, and he had met a younger woman. Well, the court case, the trial commenced on the 6th of December 1965, although it was delayed over some legal arguments over whether Watson's fourth statement had been obtained voluntarily, if it was legal alleging that that he, Watson, was told by the police that a solicitor could only be provided after he had completed his statement. This issue had to be tried in the absence of a jury and was resolved in the prosecution's favour. It seemed to have been a delaying tactic by Watson. During the trial, Watson was trying to argue that his mental responsibility was substantially diminished. During cross-examination, Watson pretended to have an epileptic fit, but as there were three doctors present in court who witnessed this spectacle, it was shown to be mere pretense. The judge later said that the only defence medical witness, a Dr. P. Gordon Smith, who was a GP, gave very unsatisfactory evidence, putting forward as evidence an opinion which under cross-examination was shown to be based upon notes made by another doctor at the surgery. Al Watson's sister, Miss Joan Watson, gave evidence which was shown to be untrue. On the 13th of December, the jury quickly returned a verdict of guilty of murder, and the court passed a sentence of life imprisonment, with the recommendation that the minimum period of imprisonment should be 15 years. What happened to Al Watson is unknown. He would have been due for release during December 1980, when he would have been 65 years of age which would be the rough age of his two children today. If he'd committed the crime a few years earlier, it's most likely he would have been given a death sentence. Anyhow, so ends another podcast. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. Until next time, I'll say goodbye.